Hello, and welcome to Revolution 22's teaching podcast. We are a church from the downtown area in Boise, Idaho. Thank you for joining us today and hearing this week's sermon. We pray that God's word will be received and will bear fruit in your life. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. That's where we are today. If you want to get caught up on all of the kind of the 11 through 14 last week, we kind of did a recap and went through all of it as quickly as possible. One of the things I was thinking about today when preparing for this is you never really know you're lost until you're lost. Have you ever thought about that? Like, it's not like one of those things like, I bet this turn is making me lost. And if you're one of those people, like, it's, we understand it's okay. Many years ago, Jen and I had, we had a Jeep, we used to take it off road. And we had decided, hey, let's take a day. All, all of us guys are like, let's take a day. Let's do a really easy trail that some of the people that come with us that have never experienced this, they can drive the vehicles and have fun doing that. And so we were going along and it's really slow. So a few of us that own the vehicles are just kind of walking behind. And the next thing we know, we look forward and my friend's Jeep is like up on its front, about ready to go over like frontwards, like, whoa. So we come run up there. And we're like, this got really difficult, really fast. And we don't know what happened. And I kid you not, like five minutes later, some wonderful mountain bikers come running up to us saying all sorts of really kind words about how we are on a bike trail and not a Jeep trail. And that's why it's so difficult, because if you're trying to put a big vehicle Jeep through a bike trail, we don't know when we got lost. This was supposed to be an hour and a half trip. It ended up taking us about four and a half hours, five hours to get out. And the only way to do it was to finish the bike trail, which to tell you, mountain bikers don't appreciate that, just so you know. Um, but it wasn't like we could say, oh, at this spot, we must have turned left, or at this spot, we must have turned left, or, or we can just kind of trace our steps backwards and find it. But a lot of times, that's what happens. When you're lost, you're, you're lost. And you, it always hits you at the same spot. Like, oh, I have no idea where I am. I have no idea how to get out of here. I have no idea where I'm going. I am completely lost. And again, it's not something that along the way, you're like, if I turn left here, I'm going to get lost. Like, it's not something that we cognitively do that way. We end up being lost. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, you guys can turn with me. This is a section of scripture that's really interesting because it's lumped in the middle of 11 through 16, which is the now concerning section. Now concerning, now concerning. He, he is uh, inspired by the Spirit of God, answering all these questions that have been brought to him. But this doesn't start that way. Chapter 15 doesn't start with the now concerning. And we'll talk a little bit more down in the in this sermon about why I think that. But one of the things that we have to understand, this is a whole chapter on the resurrection of Christ. And it's a really brilliant chapter. And today we're going to kind of just kind of tip our toes in and then we'll spend a lot of time covering it as we work through all 58 verses of it. But one of the things we have to understand about the culture as a whole in Corinth and in, around this day is that no one really doubted, no one really doubted or denied the resurrection most of the Corinthians were almost certainly not denying life after death. Everyone believed that there was life after death, but it was always kind of based on this, this utopian kind of like the, the body goes away and there's a spirit side of it. And so because of that belief, mostly what the Greeks taught, because of that belief, there was this understanding that our bodies could do, experience, and be anything we want them to be and do because they're going away anyways. It doesn't really matter. So it didn't necessarily matter how we treated ourselves or what we did with our bodies or what they did physically or what, what was happening with temple prostitutes. Like all those things were, were kind of seeped in from paganism into the church. And they understood this idea that, look, your body doesn't really matter. And so God inspires the Apostle Paul to answer this question and work through this, which wasn't necessarily a question that they have that we are aware of. There's a chance that it came as a question and he just for variety's sake did this, but I'll, I'll explain a little bit further why I think it's not that. So let's go ahead and read it in chapter 15, verse 1. 
Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the 12, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Again, so this section right here, he says, look, I'm delivering you that which is of first importance. That is, that is the first and most important thing that we can do. Now, I don't know if you, how you study the scriptures, but when you hear something of first importance or this is the most important thing to do, it's, it's a good idea to kind of tune your ears in and go, wait a second, what is the Lord trying to say? Well, he says, look, this is the most important thing. This is of first importance in, in verse three. It says, for I delivered to you what I also received of first importance. So this is a message that he had received. We know about the timing of this book that was written around 55 to 60 AD. We know that, that at this point, there are still many people that experienced the, the walking, resurrecting Jesus, resurrected Jesus alive, still alive and around. Many of them had, had walked with him and seen him and spent that 40 days that we hear about in Acts that we wish we knew more about that Jesus had spent with the disciples, teaching them and training them opening up scriptures to them. And so what he does here is he starts this really long section of resurrection with kind of this, hey, I want to just, I want to just kind of put it before trial before you. I want to set this before trial. If the resurrection isn't real, then there's a lot of things we have to undo in our understanding of faith and everything else that goes along with it. If the resurrection is real, then we can understand that this is what Jesus had done and this is where we're going. And so he starts with this idea of saying, look, I received this. It wasn't something that I created or I conjured up on my own. This is something that I received and then I've delivered to you. I've, I've traditioned to you is the word he really is using there. This isn't something that is made up. It's, it's just done. And it's of the most importance, of the first importance. And then he goes through this long list in this section of what's important. He says, what is it that's important? That Jesus died for our sins in accordance with scriptures and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with scriptures. So he goes... He goes through this idea. Look, he, it, it's important that he died. He needed to die because if he doesn't die, like the resurrection doesn't happen. He, it's important that he, he's buried and goes in the tomb because if that doesn't happen, like again, we, see, we think it kind of can be a spirit thing. But he says, no, it's, it's important. Now, accordance with scripture is a little difficult here because there isn't one specific verse that he's quoting. He's probably going back to a number of verses. Isaiah 53, Daniel 9, 26, most likely the, I mean, any of the, he could have be taking a significance on the third day reference and working into Matthew uh, chapter 12, verse 40, speaking of Jonah, Hosea 6, 2, or John 2, 22, to name a few, plus many, many other ones, Esther 5, 1, Ezra 8, 32, Joshua 2, 22. So it's not, it's not, I know some of you are like writing notes, like, sorry, I can give you that list if you ask it later. There's a ton of scripture that points, whether it's a, a, a typological kind of like putting down the understanding of what three days means in accordance with scripture, or if it was specifically speaking it to like, like it was in Isaiah 53, 
or some of the other ones. But what he's saying is, look, accordance to Scripture. Now, for us, we have to understand it's not accordance to what we have here. It's to the Old Testament. So when he's saying, look, this all happened and it lined up and it matched and it fit into the Old Testament, the scriptures that they had their hands on. He's writing scripture right now, but this isn't what's being used as the scriptures when he's referencing. He's talking about the Old Testament scriptures that they had memorized, that they had studied, that they all knew. He's saying, look, everything that Jesus did, everything that Jesus did is in accordance with scripture. Look at the the disciples that are walking on that road after Jesus's death and resurrection. Like we had hoped And what does he do while he's walking with them? He unfolds, he lays out all of scripture and how it pointed to what Jesus had done and was doing. And they they, they literally like, did our hearts not burn with fire when he opened up the scripture to us? All of the scriptures point to it. And so the apostle Paul inspired by God is kind of setting up this like, hey, let's, let's let's just make sure we're all on the same page before we get into this really important subject. This really happened. In case you were wondering, it, it, it happened because it, it, it follows Scripture. It's exactly what Scripture had said. We see it. We know of the, with the accounts where they're at. We've heard of the, the first words in conversation through all the people in the Gospels. The Gospels weren't necessarily circulated at this point, but we know what's been communicated. Not only that, and then he goes through a list of individuals that physically saw Jesus with their eyes. Because again, there was a lot of argument as, what, did he really die? Or did he kind of die? Was he kind of like half dead? You know, like a Monty Python moment, right? Like, like what, was it, what was it really that happened? Or did he get buried or not? What was, what was going on? And, and the fact that, that we could point out to no, we saw him die. Even Thomas said, I want to touch his side where the spear pierced him. And I want to touch his hands and see the holes. And then I'll believe. And so the Apostle Paul doesn't lay out everyone he shows to, and he doesn't even really lay them out in any um, specific order of how he had presented himself through the resurrection, but I think he does it in order that makes sense to the people in Corinth. If you remember all the way back to the beginning of the book, there was some, some arguments about who followed who. They were divisive. They were following Cephas, which is Peter, or, or Apollos, or Paul, and there was this, the, kind of this divisiveness. And so he starts with them. He says, look, in verse 5, and then he appeared to Cephas, to Peter. He, he showed himself to Peter and then to the 12. Now, the 12 here is in reference to the rest of the apostles. It's not saying all 12 apostles. We know that Judas wasn't a part of that appearing, and we don't know if Matthias was in at that point or what was going on specifically, but we just said he's a look, he showed up to all 12 apostles. So he's saying, look, the Cephas, the person you follow, he saw him with his eyes, and then he stood up in Acts and had this amazing sermon saying, you crucified him, and all these things. Like, this is, he's a founder of the church, and this is someone that everyone is valuing in high value. He says, he saw him with his eyes. So would he make that up? Then he goes on and says, look, it was to the 12. Then he appeared to more than 500. We know of one instance in Acts where 120 were at one time. There's also other spots, but we know that over about 500 people is what history shows, not just in scripture, that had seen the resurrected Jesus. 120 or so were at the time of Jesus's ascension. So there's something in that 40 days, again, that we don't have a lot that shows this. He says, look, some of these people are still alive, though some of them have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James. Now, this is the one that I think most of us would go, okay, this is where it makes sense. He isn't talking about James, the brothers of Zebedee. He's talking about James, his brother, Jesus' brother, half-brother. Both Peter and James became the foundation, the founders of the, of the church in Jerusalem. And, and we have scripture pointing to the fact that James completely disbelieved who his brother, half-brother Jesus was. And yet James becomes the found, one of the founders of the Jerusalem church. 
it's a pretty hard thing to convince. I, I think my brother and sister are pretty awesome. I'm confident I could not convince them of that unless it were true. And he does this. He says, and to James. And then he goes on and says, and last of all, as to one untimely born. This is an interesting term. Untimely born, usually the word translated meant abortion or miscarriage or as a birth that violates the normal period of gestation. So something that gone too long or gone too short. And he, he, says, he says this of himself. It's usually seen as a, as, a, as a demeaning term to the child. He says, as one untimely born myself. He said, as one untimely born, he appeared also to me. And then he goes on and says, for I am the least, I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle. And not because he's just trying to show some false humility. He's not like, look, I'm, I'm, the le- I'm just unworthy and that's where I'm at. He's saying, no, he goes on and tells us exactly why he is the least and why he's unworthy to be called apostle. Because I persecuted the church of God. And we talked about the Apostle Paul, who was Saul at the beginning of the book in Corinthians, also at the beginning of the book of Ephesians. I would encourage you to go back and listen. It's amazing what God has done in his life. But to take someone who was hostily persecuting the church, like imprisoning, beating, stoning to death, like literally this individual has an interaction with Jesus Christ and completely flips and becomes one of the biggest advocates for Jesus, preaching the gospel to most of the Gentiles. He's saying, look, what would change me? What would do that? What would cause me to do that? And he says, he goes on and says, the only thing that could do that is the grace of God. Grace is all that could do that. Even though I'm not deserving, even though I can't do this, it's ultimately God who did this. And he's saying, look it, I I persecuted the church and I end up being so critical for the church persecution of its mission. The answer that Paul could do this is obviously the grace of God. Paul does not describe his hard work after this as a matter of cooperating with God's grace, but entirely as an effect of God's grace. What was on display was not a manifestation of Paul's capabilities or efforts, but of the grace of God that was with him. He goes on and says, look, I don't, it's not in vain. My following is not in vain. I work hard, harder than the others. He's actually saying I work harder than the other apostles, which I think is a little funny, but that's a whole other subject for another time. He says, look, I've had to work hard at this because of Ultimately, I think he, he sees and feels just how hard he worked against it. And so this is this section. He says, look, this is why the resurrection is important. I want you to believe the resurrection because it's really important for us to understand that all of these people and all of these historical events, it's, it's hard to argue. Like, it's okay, maybe a mass hallucination at one point, or, or maybe, maybe you can even convince me that Cephas is just trying to, or Peter's just trying to figure out a way to, to stand true because he felt so much remorse for his denial. But it's really hard to convince me that James is going to be the one that's going to lead the church after his brother. It's really hard to see Paul, who was such an advocate for God in his mind in persecuting those Christians, those of the way. It's, it's really, really hard. It's, it's the whole list of what's important, but that's not what I think God wants us to take from this text. Actually, what I think, um, and the reason why I think this is here in this letter isn't because they necessarily asked the question. It's because I think the Corinthian people were lost. See, why put this in the middle of it? I skipped over it, and I'll go back to it, to verse one. I think there's our answer. He says, now I would remind you, brothers. Okay, brothers, this isn't a term of endearment. This is a term of of alignment. Like, you are my, my brothers in Christ. 
This is the same people that in chapter six have lost their way in immorality and all kinds of other issues. This is the same people that were, that were struggling with divorce and, and, and remarriage and all of those things. They were, they were divisive. They had socioeconomic classes in place for communion. This is the same people that have missed up so much. And he says, now, now I want to remind you, brothers. I want to remind you, brothers. He doesn't say, I want to encourage you to remind those that don't know this. He's speaking in this section to those that are his brothers, those that are children of God, those have submitted their life to Jesus. Whether they're walking it out right or perfectly or even correctly is not the question here. See, and I think this is such a brilliant spot for this to set in the middle of this of chapter 11 through 16 of the now concerning section in the whole letter. Such a brilliant spot because he comes in and he says, look, I want to remind you. Now, this, this word is to, to mean to cause information to become known or to make known. So it's almost like they'd forgotten, like they'd gotten a little lost and they just didn't know where they were. He says, I want to remind you, brothers, and this is what he says, which I just think is so powerful. If you, this is all I hope we get from this today. Of the gospel, I preach to you which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Now, the belief in vain here is, is heedlessly or rashly. What he's saying is, look, if you believe this not in vain, it's something you received, it's something that, he's, that you now stand in, and it's ultimately something that you will be, be saved and that you hold fast onto in the future. And so he does something that I think we as a church today forget so much as he preaches the gospel to those who are saved. And see, if you look at all of the issues that they've had in Corinth, I mean, all the issues, this could be a gross oversimplification of it, but I'm okay with it, right? All of the issues are they've literally lost sight of the gospel in their own life. Think about it. When you and I wrestle with divisiveness, it's because we're not paying attention to what the gospel is and how the gospel unites us through one spirit, one baptism, one God. When we lack forgiveness, it's because we've lost sight of the gospel and just how much we've been forgiven of. When we lose sight of living our life in a way, walking with the Spirit, it's because we lost sight of what it means to live as a part of his kingdom today, even though it's not in completion yet. When we lose sight of the gospel, guys, all things go amok. It, it just becomes a mess. And that's why I think God has the Apostle Paul just lay this beautiful chapter in the middle of all of the now concerning. And there's so much just awesome meat that I'm excited to study through in chapter 15. But I want to just, if you'll let me for a second, I want to just bring the gospel back to front and center for us, for us brothers and sisters. See, the problem is, is we all move on from the gospel, like the people in Corinthian. Most of you, you tell your story about the gospel. You say, well, when I was 15 at a youth camp, or this happened at this point, and I first believed. And it's not that that's not true. It's not that it's not true. In fact, that's what he says here, for I preached it to you, past tense, which you received, past tense, and then present, in which you stand, in which you stand. There are three parts to the gospel that need to be remembered, and I'm not gonna cover all of the parts of the gospel. We're just gonna pick three sections that I want us to leave today with just, just enamored with the idea of what God has done for us in the past, what he's doing for us in the current, and what he promises to do for us in the future. They're so powerful. Just, 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 just hang out with me for a second. This section right here, obviously I could just look at this. We see three parts of the gospel, preached, stand, and by which you're being saved. So we see this, we see this option of like we've, we're saved, we're, we're, we're currently being saved, and then there's a, there's a salvation that's coming again right in this text. But I want to pull you to three other texts, the three things I think we forget. So if you're note takers, you can write these three things down. The first thing we forget is we forget where we were prior to Christ. 
And I understand some of us, some of us, I get it. We have this story that I pray for my kids that they never know a day without the Lord, right? They don't have those like super hard stories that like, whoa, man, you went through some life the hard way. Like I want them to just like, man, I don't know when it happened, but God just grabbed my heart and I followed. But even my kids and even the people prior to leaving, we forget who we are before Christ. Let me, let me go to a scripture for you. It's in Ephesians 2. This is who we are. And you, in case you're wondering the you is, this is everyone, were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of power of the air, the spirit that is now at work and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Okay, God bless you guys. Have a great week. That's who we were. We were disobedient, children of flesh. Really, the answer there is we were dead. We weren't sick or hurting. Yes, we had sickness and we maybe be hurting, but at the end of the day, we were dead. And then the biggest but in all of scripture is right here. And it says, but God, I believe that this is, oh, it is up there, good. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, not, not even when we were kind of good in our trespasses, not even, hey, we, we, we made it okay in our trespasses, when we were dead in our trespasses, when you were dead in your trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace. And here's what I want you to see. You have been, our, you have been saved, past tense. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up and seated him with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that, what? In the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We have been saved, guys. You've been saved. When you, when you submit your life to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you have been saved. You are no longer dead. Ezekiel says that, that a heart of stone is removed and a heart of flesh is replaced in it. You've been saved. And that's the part of the gospel that I think many of us remember. There was that day that Jesus saved us. But we forget sometimes as time goes on just what he saved us from. And I think it's important to remember that apart from him, we are incapable of doing any good. It's important to remember that before him, we were dead. We were in the morgue, not in the ER. And he raised us to life. He resurrected us to life. That's what this whole chapter is about. We were fully dead as Christ was fully dead. And he has been fully resurrected as we have been fully resurrected in him. That's the past tense of the gospel. That's the one that most Christians put their hat on. They mention it at that youth camp experience or during college or whatever it was or a couple weeks ago or whatever moment. This is that moment where you realize like I was dead and now I'm alive and everything changes. But the problem is many of us then go, okay, that's cool. The gospel, turn off the brain. Don't need to talk about that anymore because the gospel doesn't pertain to me. I've moved on. That's elementary things. But yet here he is speaking to brothers, reminding them, making known to them how important it is. The second thing we forget is who we are becoming. This is who we are becoming presently, what God is doing to us over and over again on a regular basis. Uh, we, see, we see being saved in this text and many other ones. One that I want to show you is out of 1 
Um, Corinthians 1.18, he says, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are what? Being saved. To us who are being, you are currently being saved. If you are a child of God right now, God is saving you. He's working in you right now through the power of the gospel. He's saving you. He says, currently we are being saved. What? It is the power of God that is doing that. You are currently being saved. The gospel is something that is saving you today, not just what saved you from being dead. Yes, that's awesome. Praise God, I'm no longer dead. I'm made alive. But in my aliveness, he is saving me. If we belong to Christ, we are united to him and no longer slaves to sin. We see that in Romans 6, 5 through 6. We are made alive with him, Ephesians 2, 5. We are conformed to his image, Romans 8, 29. Free from condemnation and walking not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit, Romans 8, 1. We are part of the body of Christ with other believers, Romans 12, 5. We are the believer that now possesses a new heart, Ezekiel eleven nineteen, 19, and has been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, Ephesians 1, 3. Those are all truths of us now. We walk without condemnation because that's true of us now because the gospel is saving us continually so that when I choose to, to sin or go my own way and I fall back in repentance, I'm being saved by the gospel daily. God is saving me. Not that my salvation is not true, but that I'm being saved on a regular basis. All of scripture talks about this and I, I want to pause on this for one second. If there isn't evidence in your life of being saved on a regular basis... If there isn't evidence of the Spirit moving, we've been talking about this over the last few months. If there isn't evidence, then we have to ask the question, is there evidence of the gospel in our life? It's not here to like, I don't want to pose this question to make all of you question your salvation. That's not the purpose of this. But he does say in vain here. We see in Hebrews, he says, look, persevere to the end. We see in 1 John that they were never of us because... They, they fell away, but they were never of us. We see Jesus saying that many will say, Lord, Lord, did I not? And he say, I never knew you. Look, there is something true about the gospel that not only transforms us from death and brings us into life, but continues to save us on a daily basis. And so, so if you are submitted to Jesus Christ, if you've given your life to Christ, then let him work. Stop stopping this locomotive that's going and saving us on a single day. He's gonna comp- complete the work he promised to begin. And you are being saved, being saved saved. The reason why we get in a lot of trouble is we forget that the gospel is something that we are to live by today, not just what happened when, when, I, when we converted, not just something that happened in the past, not just our story in high school or college. It's, it's something that I can today make decisions and live and, and see the gospel play out in my life and watch, watch me not only feel no condemnation, not because of, of my poor choices, but because I know that I'm being saved in the gospel despite my, for, my poor choices. We forget who we're becoming. The third one is we take our eyes off of Jesus. I think this is the one that that probably affects most of our day in and day out lives. Many of us get too enamored and wrapped up in our college degrees, our careers, our kids and their education and whatever else we get in our work and our getting getting our tenure or whatever else we need to do. Like many of us, we, we just get wrapped up in things because I think we lose sight of Jesus. We lose sight of the fact that the gospel has promises for us in the future, not just today or in the past. The gospel is something that, that we can live and look forward to. And we see this in Romans 13, 11. He says, besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from your sleep for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. There's a salvation that's coming to us. 
There's a salvation that's coming to us that's nearer to us now than even when we first believed. There's a salvation coming. There's a, there's a second coming. And I think the reason why I think this is so brilliant is if you look back at the first eight chapters, kind of nine chapters of Corinthians, one of the big issues working through the whole don't do these things, don't do these things, wasn't because he was trying to say, this is how you're supposed to live. He was saying, look, this is how we are to live if we are part of the kingdom that's coming. The, the reason why we shouldn't give ourselves to these things isn't because they're just bad and God says, don't do it. It's because it's not true to the very nature he has saved us in. It's not true to, the, to bringing us to new life and then continuing to save us. We walk out and live today by the Spirit's power. What, what does Apostle Paul say? I work as hard as possible, but it's the Spirit of God in me that does it. We are, we are going to be saved too. Church, one of the biggest mistakes we make is we move on from the gospel. We see it as elementary. We don't, we don't see it as matters. Uh, Hebrews 12, 1 to 2 says this, says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which so clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And here it is, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter or completer of our faith. He's going to complete the work he began in us who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. There is going to be a day where we are rid of this flesh. It's gone. We no longer have to battle it. We won't have to deal with the, the fragileness of everything breaking down around us and just deteriorating because we will no longer be a part of that. There's a, there's a salvation coming in the second coming that where we, we are no longer, we are new in an, in an in, imperishable body. Like it's, it's coming. We will then know perfect joy. As Psalm 1611 says, it says, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand, our pleasure is forevermore. We will know full joy, not cheap happiness like many of us seek after in this world, but full joy in his presence. That's where it is. There's a, there's a second coming. We see in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, that now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. We talked about this. Look, there's gonna be a day where we're gonna fully know God like he fully knows us. There's a, there's a, there's a salvation coming as well. This is a good thing. This should, this should overwhelm us with joy. So I, I guess I, I move on to this to say, could you be lost? Have you maybe... As you look at your life right now, you realize you've tried to move on from the gospel, but you got kind of sidetracked a long ways, and you, you, you know that he, he made you alive, but along the way, now you're like, you're looking back, and you're like, well, how did I get here? And it's not like you can pick one turn or one, like, one sequence of turns, but you realize, man, I'm lost. I, I've, I've, I've literally gotten lost. Now, now, my encouragement would be fall on the gospel. Repent of it. Surrender yourself to Jesus. God, I, I got lost. I, I went my own way. I made my own choices. I, I know this is not what you want from me. I want to continue to be saved, not just be, have been saved. And I want to experience salvation to the fullest. Like, like, come back to him. Run to him. Turn to him and say, wherever you are, there isn't a road you can go down. He's like, mm, I've never been down that road. I don't know where that road is. Like, he, he's not lost you. If you are his, he has not lost you, guys. But our actions and our choices and our life, the way that we live it sometimes, can show the world that we are lost. We started at the gospel, but we, we kind of veered off. 
and we moved on, assuming that there was something greater than the gospel, which there are amazing truths, and there are great things, but it is all founded on the gospel. The good news that we were once dead and now are alive. We were selfish, and now we have the ability to be selfless. We were unlovable, but he loved us, and now we can actually love because he first loved us. Everything we do is centered on the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Everything we do, and it's not just an Easter message. It's something that we need to be preaching and and washing over ourselves daily. Every day I need to be reminded of the fact that who I am apart from him is horrible because this flesh will want to do things that its muscle memory was, was true to before knowing Jesus. And, and I'll tell myself and believe the lie that it actually could be better apart from him. And I think that's why he does it. The issues that the church of Corinth were having, the divisiveness and the, 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 the socioeconomic classes and the, the sexual immorality and all the things that they were giving themselves is because they, they literally thought, okay, I can just... Just have this gospel as an insurance policy and just so that so I don't have to do this like hell thing if that's real or not. And they just kind of did that like many Christians today do. And then they stopped living true to it and just gave themselves to anything and everything around them. Would you let the gospel overwhelm you? Do you remember the first time? Do you remember the first time? Just, just, just do this little practice for me for a second. The first time when you first believed At that moment, you couldn't answer everything. If someone said, well, what do you believe? Well, let me tell you about the the Trinity and the, the, here's my eschatology. And like, no, you didn't know any of that stuff. You knew what every single one of us knew at that moment. I was dead and now I'm alive. I was blind and now I see. And all you could do in that moment was sit in the brokenness of recognizing that you had finally seen just how depraved and hopeless and broken you were And how a God who is so big and so powerful not only made a way for you to be with him, but came down to you and lifted you up and said, I will take you. You are mine. And I will put you back to pieces. I'll put you back. I'll make you whole. And in that moment, the only thing that made sense was a snot-filled Kleenex and a bunch of tears. But so many of us, we move on from that. We graduate as if that's not something valuable or important or beautiful. Guys, we, we have no right to do anything. If we're going to talk about the spiritual gifts that we've been talking about, we have no right to do anything. But in his grace, he has saved us. He has renamed us. He has he's recreated us. He's brought us into newness instead of oldness and said, I am going to complete what I began in you. Now let me save you. Let me keep working. You stop running from the gospel. So we're going to take communion today. That would be a really good thing to do. And this may sound morbid, but I don't ever drink juice in remembrance of my grandma who passed away a few years ago. None of us do. We don't, we, don't, we don't ever really celebrate the body or blood of any other person in our life. It's not because they aren't important. It's because they didn't resurrect. It's because they aren't God. And so when we come to communion, we get an opportunity to proclaim not only what God has done for us in the past, through Jesus Christ, what God has done in us to save us, we get to proclaim the fact that he is continuing to wash us and save us and do those things. And we get to proclaim that he's gonna come back and there's gonna be a day when we're gonna be rid of this fleshly body doing the stupid things that we continue to do in spite of what we know God is commanding and leading us to do. There's gonna be a day where we be whole. So I thought, why, what better day to, to do communion? 
But I think we'd be, we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about just the fact that, that when we do communion, we're not just celebrating Jesus' blood that was spilled for us. Because look, if he didn't resurrect, it, it's kind of a pointless thing to do. We're, we're celebrating that his blood was spilled for us, that he, was, he, was, he fulfilled the law perfectly, that which we could not do. And he was the perfect sacrifice once and for all, for all to have hope and joy and for us to be able to surrender our lives to him and then be deemed righteous by God, by not anything we did, but by what he did. And so we don't just proclaim that he, he bled for us. We proclaim that he bled for us, that he was buried for us, but that he walked out of that tomb that third day and he lives and we follow a resurrected Christ, one that doesn't just have implications on our past, but has present-day implications and implications of our future. And so I would encourage you guys, when you feel led to get up at any moment, communion's up here. You can take it as you want with your, with your spouse, with your gospel community, individually, with friends, whatever you want to do. Um, take it as you do it. But remember, again, as we've looked at communion a lot over the last few months, do this with a heart of repentance. If, 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 if just being reminded of the gospel today, you just need to, you just need to repent of the fact that you've, you've moved on from the gospel, then just do that. And like we said over and over again, repentance should not push us away from God. It should draw us nearer to him. So when you confess the darkest and grossest divisiveness or things that you have done or unforgiveness, when you confess those things, it's not like God's going up there, okay, well now let's, let's see if it's real before you come to me. He's saying, no, run to me. I've already forgiven you for that. I'm washing you over and over again. I'm saving you over and over again. I'm advocating for you. In the throne room of God, Jesus is praying for you individually. He is anchoring you to the throne room of God, not by anything you've done, guys. So celebrate. Celebrate that there is a salvation coming that we are nearer to now than we were at our first belief. Celebrate that there are implications today that you can live in a way, a part of the gospel that you had no idea you were capable of doing, but they're true to the kingdom that is coming. And celebrate that you are no longer dead or blind or deaf, but you have life and you see and you hear. Celebrate that God is not done saving you and that God is still going to save you over and over again through the gospel and that there are people around you that he's going to use your salvation story to show them salvation. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for saving me. Yeah, I don't deserve that. I know I don't, God, but you, you deem me worthy, not because of what I've done. You deem me worthy because of what you have done through Christ. God, to know that I am anchored to the throne room, that there is nothing that can take me out of your grasp. There is nothing that can take me from you. There is no principality, no power, nothing that will separate me from you. You've already defeated sin and death, and God, you are ultimately king of all. And so, God, I thank you. I thank you for saving me. God, thank you for the ability to worship you. Thank you for reminding me this week just how good it is to be saved today. God, how, how wonderful it is to walk in salvation tomorrow. And ultimately, God, I pray. I pray in spite of all my hopes and dreams to see my kids grow up and to... Um, see them get married and to know you and to follow you. God, I just pray even more than that, that you come back. Because the best thing that can happen for any of us isn't that we continue on without you. It's that we could be in your throne room, worshiping you alongside of those angels. So forgive us for not looking forward to that salvation too, God. 
I thank you so much for the gospel, the good news that is um, not contingent on us doing anything, but it's contingent on who you are and the promises you keep. And there is no one more trustworthy than you, Lord. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. To find out more about our church, please visit revolution22.org. We encourage you to not neglect meeting together as believers. And may you continue to love God and love others.